Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When a balloon got target, you will regret that this whole thing started. Hey, hey, hey! We got episode five of the Playboys. Playboys, the one and only, especially for you. So, how's it going, Dean? I'm good. I just got perplexed by episode five. We're gonna actually cast overtake the the main show soon. <laughs> Oh my god, yeah, that's actually... So there's already <laughs> almost more episodes of just Shakespeare than just our usual episodes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, guys, this is, why, this is why it's only for you guys. So it's not for just anyone. Uh, originally, this was called Bufanda Boys, by the way. And it's become a bit of an obscure reference, but um, it's the same concept. I like to think of Bufanda Boys as the overarching concept for our premium content, and Playboys is just the first thing within that, you know? Exactly. So there's just the beginning of, of much magic and playfulness, guys. So just <laughs> keep tuned. Keep tuned. So what are you talking about today, then? Today we're talking about Romeo and Juliet, the, the big one, the big romance, the, probably the most famous Shakespeare play there is. Big romance. Romeo and Juliet. It's all about love today, guys. Well, it's not really, though, is it? It's it's all about love and death. Did you but know? It's, it's the, about precisely the kind of love that I like. So what? Where they just end up kind of dying after yes, meeting two or this, three days. This this big, you know, classic literature. You get it in Shakespeare. You get it in Victorian literature, where the romance is so powerful that you know you just give your life. It's just uh, it's it's exactly the kind of romance that I love. It's a, it's a kind of moth uh, meets the flames romance, guys. You can't resist it. You know you're going to die, but you're just going to jump right into it and die in ecstasy. Basically, that's the kind of uh, thing it is. But yeah, Roman Judas. So everyone knows a story. Um, there's a lot to say about this, guys. So I'm not sure where to start, but I, I suppose we can start with a story, a uh, basic story. Um, what can we say about the story, Dean? The story is, as you said, Two, two, two young sprouts meet two each other. Star, star-crossed lovers, if you will. Two star-crossed uh, lovers. Uh, t- you know, they take their lives. Actually, hold on a second. The thing about this play I want to mention, first of all, is that everything about the story is in the prologue. So it's literally like everything you would ever need to know, even if you actually have not heard of Romeo and Juliet. All the spoilers are in the prologue in the form of a sonnet right at the beginning of the play. Mm-hmm. So, guys, when you're doing your, you know, your English literature exams and you forgot to read the play and the exam starts in 10 minutes, you just read the prologue and you know what just it's read about. The, That's it. Just read, just read the prologues. I thought I could read it out. Would you like to hear it? Go then? for it. Just Go for, for a refreshment. It. So, guys, because it's quite, it's quite important as well. Um, it begins like this. It's a chorus. By the way, guys, a chorus was, is, a, is a kind of a Greek theater invention. So it was very much used in Greek theater. 
it's basically the town, the democracy, everyone coming together and basically telling the story, what happened so far and what might happen soon after. I uh, wasn't happy with this chorus, by the way. Right on. Right on. No, right I on. was appalled by this chorus. Because of the giveaways. No, well, I mean, well, first of all, the you know, give, doing the giveaways isn't very Greek, but um, no, I was appalled by by how it's used. So the idea of a chorus, and it differs a little bit from tragedy to comedy in in the Greek. In comedy, yeah. it does tend to just be kind of extras. In tragedy, yeah. it almost plays a more vital role at, at sometimes. Oh, well, but yeah. but what we got here is the the chorus speaks at the prologue. They speak at the end of Act One, and then they disappear. Mm, yes, that's not so common, guys. So usually a chorus is, is almost like a character. It's basically the town talking with you, yeah. and especially in, in Greek tragedy, right? And Medea especially, it's very it's a very important role, just kind of mm-hmm. filling in the gaps, explaining things, giving a more of a personal interpretation of all these godly and unusual heroic events happening. And there's, um, there's certain things I can I can tolerate. If Shakespeare doesn't want to use the chorus as a character and he just wants to have it at the end of each act, you know, I can tolerate that. That's fine. That's an innovative way to use the chorus. But it's the fact that it disappears after Act One, but almost every act, or at least some of them, yeah. you know, end with a chorus type speech. But one of the characters does it, you know, including yeah, yeah. at the very end of the play. I don't understand why they didn't just continue using the chorus. Yeah. So the, the chorus is only twice, right? It's actually beginning just of twice. Yeah. Beginning of of uh, of Act One. And beginning of Act Two, that's right. And then they just disappear. To be fair, um, but anyway, they they do give away important plot elements, and uh, really, a chorus is kind of like a trailer nowadays, except it might give more away. And there is a reason why this was done in Shakespearean times, and that had to do with uh, an Elizabethan theater where you would have up to two thousand people attending, and you had no microphones you would have to quickly grasp the attention of the audience. All right. Especially of the attentions of the groundlings. So the groundlings were basically the the people who paid little to get in. So poor people. And if the groundlings who had to stand also, so it was a bit uncomfortable, they had to stand quite near to the front of the stage. If they were not entertained from the beginning, they would cause a riot. So I, the idea is basically that Shakespeare decided, one theory is that Shakespeare decided to captivate the attention of the play from the beginning. So it seems very kind of like irrelevant and unnecessary reading it. And in today's quiet modern theater, in Elizabethan time, it could have well have been necessary that people, all right, oh, someone's going to die. Um, someone's going to fall in love. And there's going to be fights. So like the man will enjoy the fights. The woman will enjoy the love or vice versa. So That's how I look at it. It's almost less akin to going to the, you know, the Grand Opera House, which is the theater in Belfast, than it is to go, going to like a, you know, a rock concert where there's a lot of people standing near the stage who want like yeah, immediate yeah. entertainment, like more riotous. Like it's closer to that than, than modern theater almost. Yeah, it's a very good metaphor. I like that actually. So basically they would have to grasp attention. Although that, you, you do make a good point in anything about it, that makes it seem almost unnecessary, at least the second course. It's like almost like if one course would be okay, but the second course seems then maybe unnecessary because you would think that they would be captivated already by that point. You would think, uh, yeah. But, it just annoyed me with his chorus, you know, because there's the very end of the play, the prince makes a speech. You know, some of the scenes do end 
close with a, some of the acts do close with a speech that could have been huh. done by a chorus. So I, d- I don't know. I don't know. Wait a minute. Guys, to get to the story as well, and I want to talk about Shakespeare's language a bit here as well in a second. But anyway, this is the chorus, and this is basically the, the story. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows strife, doth with their death buried their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of her stage, the which if you with patient ears attend, where here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. All right, guys. So that's basically the... That's the play. That's the, the, that concludes our episode on, on Romeo and Juliet. That, that's it. Basically, if we can finish off. And guys, again, it's a meta, it's a kind of a meta reference to uh, theater once again. And he's doing it all the time, Shakespeare. He does it a lot with, um, um, with As You Like It. And also also with Hamlet, which is basically that he refers to actors and the theater. I mean, basically here's it, it. This sonnet ends with what here shall miss or toil shall mend. And it's a two hours traffic over stage. So it's like two hours performance is meant here is traffic. Yeah, that's, so that's very breaking the fourth wall. You know, that's yeah, he does right that. in there. And, and Shakespeare does that a lot. And it's a sonnet. Let's not forget. So there are three sonnets in this play, three Shakespearean uh, sonnets. In iambic pentameter, uh, uh, iambic pentametric sonnets. So that's this is a big one for that kind of Shakespearean language. So if you're studying Shakespearean language, this is a great play. By the way, what what do you think about the story? Do you, do you want to talk about the story? Like, I mean, what 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 do you like about this play? I like, apart from my little nitpick about the chorus, I pretty much like everything else about the play. It's brilliant. It's, it's, it's a awesome. really good one. And it's rare for me to really, really love a Shakespeare that isn't a comedy. But I really, really mm. love this one. Um, yeah, because it is very entertaining as well. I mean, it's tragic, but it's very captivating, we'll say. It is captivating. And it is. And can't it's stop just, reading it. I, I'm, I'm the sort of person who just loves romance and this story between Romeo and Juliet. Now, I mean, Elephant in the Room, we do need to get rid of the Elephant in the Room straight away, is that, you know, Juliet is 13. Okay. Uh, Romeo's right, age, yeah. I think, is not specified. It's understood that he's a little bit older. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I did find it unusual when they, and I was telling you this before we went on air, uh-huh. when uh-huh. they say, you know, well, many girls your age would already be married and have children. And I'm thinking, well, she's 13. And for these girls to already be married and have, chil- and, and have children and have gone through a pregnancy, I don't know, are they marrying these girls off at 10 or 11 years old? Like, that's peculiar to me, but... But within the context of its time, if you can forget mm. that, that she's 13, uh, you know, I don't pretend that she's 20 or something, um, then it's just a lovely, lovely romance between Romeo and Juliet. And I love it because they only meet, you know, really once. And then they're already in love. It's that love at first sight. You know, they meet at the it party is, yeah. that you shouldn't have attended. And then we get the classic stuff where she's, you know, looking out the window from the tower and he's on the ground below and, you know, just... 
making love from the distance. You know, these these it's just perfect. It's just this so, perfect. So yeah, so it's that kind of overall, um, and everyone knows that kind of story because it's also been repeated so many times. I mean, you know, the Titanic, for example, is just basically a Romeo and Juliet. You know, on the Titanic, that's just basically what it is. It's all about guys. It's all about these. Um, class differences but in this case it's more like a clan clash so basically you got two families the capulets and the montagues and they're in verona and they're they're alike in dignity that's what the prologue says although i personally think i'd like to get to you with this thing that i think the montagues might be considered slightly lowbrow uh by i the think others. the capulets are a step above the montagues yeah they, i would they agree seem, with you on that yeah they seem to be but anyway that's only implied and the prologue doesn't say the prologue says the opposite so it's kind of like but when you read the play, it's always kind of implied that, you know, Roman might not be quite as well off. He's not throwing parties, like, for example, the Capulets are. Yeah. So I think that's kind of interesting. But basically, these families have an ancient grudge against each other that's not clear either. It's, it's never not. Explained. They don't explain it. So it's very mysterious, right? I mean, it's a very mysterious play because it's not explained. We're just going to assume this from the beginning and nothing can change it. The prologue says it. The prologue says that nothing can change it. Um, which but their children's end not could remove. So in, in, in modern English, it's like, except the children's end, except in dying, nothing can remove their parents' rage and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove. As now the two hours traffic over stage. So it's a two-hour performance, and it's all about that, guys. It's all about the, the two-phone love, and that's where the quote comes from, or Romeo, or wherefore art thou Romeo? Why? Are you a, a Romeo? Why are you a Montague? Because you're actually my enemy. Yeah. And yeah. They fall in love with, with their enemies. And I mean, they're theoretical enemies. They're not practical enemies. They've never even met, but they're supposed to be, you know, at loggerheads. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a bit of like, a, it's been like a political and a religious sort of metaphor, isn't it? Because it's, there's a lot of kind of assumptions and racism, particularly in the figure of Tybalt, who is um, who's Juliet's cousin. And he's like a really violent guy who's kind of just, he wants to kill all the Montagues. And he just wants to kill. He wants to kill Romeo because Romeo went to the capitalist party being invited. That's how vicious this guy is. And he's the main antagonist, I suppose. And yeah, but it's just absurd. There's no, there's no, there's no, it's, it's kind of like, it just reminds me of racism in the sense of like, yeah, but all right, so your dad hated this minority or even majority, but why do you hate it? Oh, because my dad hated it. And, you know, it's just, and it's just kind it's, of like. It's pretty much that. It's pretty much yeah. that, but it's almost like, it seems more absurd because they're two families of the same standing or similar standing, yeah. you know, but, but if you were to put it onto two people of a different race, different class, whatever, it would highlight, you know, it would seem more obvious to you. But when you, when you read it, it's like, no, well, this is exactly the same. This is essentially exactly the same as it would be if it were racist. It's just that it's not, <laughs> you know? Wow. Well, yeah. It, and like, yeah. It's just that they, they, the two, the two sides hate each other for no particular reason, you know? And that's, there was something happened, I guess, in the past somewhere and their families hate each other. I do get the That's feeling it. that they have managed to coexist for a time. You know, I think this is yeah. in this play, trouble is stirring up again. But I think that there's been some period of of quiet 
you know, between. Indeed. But unfortunately, guys, the play does begin with a couple of Montagues fighting with a couple of Capulets. And to be honest, it's always the Capulets who always are a bit more vicious. I get the impression. It is. But the the intro to the play teaches us something. Guys, keep your servants and your clansmen in check. Because that because... is what happens. They stir up the trouble. It's not Romeo. It's not you know the Mister Capulet. It's these servants so... and the you know lesser members of the clans. So basically, guys, all your your the Jeeves in your house or those butlers in your house, are just keep them in check that they don't stir any you know any more nonsense. Basically, and yeah, basically uh, the Prince of Verona, the set of Verona in Italy, although it's not Italy does not exist at this point it's just in uh, a mixture of nations um so the italy we know today uh, doesn't exist and it's important actually because it's set in, in italy but italy at the time um a lot of kind of families competed against each other like the medicis against other families and there are a lot of different families that were just that just brutally hate each other not just two so I feel like it, there, there's a reason why Roman and Julia is set in Italy. And you can't ignore that Shakespeare wasn't really, he wasn't a traveler. He's just, I know they're very exotic settings, but he always does bring an element of stereotype, even though he even breaks beyond it a bit, like with the good Jew, for example. He breaks beyond it in The Merchant of Venice. He breaks beyond it a bit in Roman and Julia. But Roman and Julia still have that kind of stereotypical Italian passion, that Mediterranean, Latino extravaganza i mean like tybalt is kind of tybalt could be just a modern hollywood latin american stereotype you know what i mean like one of those kind yeah. of action films with a latin american kind of blowing it it there is an element of a stereotype in it now should i be thinking should i be thinking antonio banderas in uh, in desperado is that what yes. i'm thinking yes <laughs> and now that and now that's all right but i mean it's there is an element of stereotype but i mean it's still it's still cool uh, all right and to be honest, though, but, uh, as I said, Shakespeare does break beyond it, and especially with the characters of Romeo and Juliet. I mean, Juliet especially, she begins with the phrase, one of her first phrases, after the famous sonnets sequence, she shares with Romeo when they meet. When she finds out that he is a Montague, she says, my only love sprung from my only hate. And yes, and she isn't, conflict the whole time of kind of like he is a montague um you know my dad doesn't want me to marry him and it only gets complicated more complicated at the end of act three so do you want to do you want to should we do you want to spoil it or not or not really well this is the question we always have is how far in the story do we want to talk about i think if you're looking (laughs) at a five-act play i think it's acceptable to go up to act three you know, but we we never like to spoil the ending. So all right. So what happens at Act Three, Dean? When, at the end, Tibbot. I'm afraid Tibbot goes a bit Antonio Banderas, doesn't he? he goes a Unfortunately, bit. Unfortunately, we lose we lose uh, we lose Tibbot in the end, uh, chaps. We lose yes. him um, after the usual fighting and and skirmishing. Tibbot decides to to kill. Um, is it Mer- Mercutio that he kills? Yeah, uh, one, uh, one of one um, of Romeo's friends, but who is also a, a friend or a relative of the prince. Oh, and Lord. what happens then is, you know, Romeo avenges him and, and slays Tybalt. Right, and that's a bit unfortunate because Tybalt is, um, yes, 
the cousin, the kinsman of the uh, Capulet family. And in fact, at that point, um, Juliet, Juliet and Juliet just married Romeo the day. So and this is the great, right? They just they just met one day and then the next day they marry. And then at the evening of that play, he already killed her cousin. So it's very fast paced. And it's, <laughs> it's a very bit, fast paced. It's a bit bad, uh, but that's what makes it so great. But so yeah, let's, but then... reset, let's reset a little. So there is a friar who uh, it's described as his friar Lawrence's cell here. So I don't know why that is, but there is a friar and they go to him to get married. But he, I think he's got good intentions, um, but he gets involved a little bit in the story. He causes some of the the things that happen, some of the bad things that happen, you know, and it's not always his fault. They're asking for his help, um, but he marries them. For example, he gives them some convenient plot devices later on as well. Hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of like Shakespeare's always bringing out these characters to 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 further their plot. And um, yeah, basically he does several things that if he didn't hadn't done this, then perhaps the plot wouldn't have continued. But anyway, at the end of Act 3, um, Romeo has to escape uh, Verona. Uh, he has to go to um, uh, what's the place called again? Good Lord. Uh, he has to go he to different to Mantua, doesn't he? To Mantua, yeah. It's also in Lombardia. So close by. And he has to leave. And in fact, guys, if you're studying Shakespeare's uh, plays, this is very common. That at the end of Act 3, and Act 3, there is uh, there's basically something that basically turns everything around. So it's a reversal uh, of, um, of look, I suppose, of fortune. And basically, the protagonist has to leave. The same thing is hap- happens in a lot of the tragedies, especially. So, in um, for example, Hamlet has to leave to England at the end of Act Three, and so the Romeo has to leave at the end of Act Three, and so Act Four is often um, the part of the play where the main character is missing or partially missing, missing. And it becomes the focus moves on to other characters, important secondary characters, or sometimes even very unimportant second characters, as we see in As You Like It. And in this yeah. case, Juliet becomes a bit more substantial. As I think she grows as a character. She is a very strong, strongly developed character, I find. A very strongly developed female character. And she does become even more mature. And do you know what I find interesting, Dean, actually? Um, it's something quite subtle, but actually um their poetic skills their rhyming the way they produce sonnets uh, actually matures by the way the the play when the play goes on and the more they mature the more their poetic skills mm. and mature and i was reading a theory about this I was listening to it that one theory is that roman jew it took a long time to write i mean they assumed that he might have taken six years to write roman Juliet, if not longer from the beginning to the end and one theory is that Shakespeare just also matured as a poet as he, mm. as he was nearing the play to an end. And so automatically the poetry got better. But one theory is as intentional that especially with Romeo, that he's in Romeo, by the way, guys, is in love with a different character at the beginning. Not his true love. With, with uh, Rosaline, right? Yeah, Rosaline, right. Who's actually a cousin of Juliet. And yeah, but basically it's very interesting because the way... His poetry, the way the rhymes at the beginning when he describes Rosalind, they're kind of dull and slightly stereotypical. There is nothing compared to his amazing sonnet kind of duel he has right at the beginning with Julia. So when they meet, mm. there's that famous sonnet. And then further on, especially at the end, when, he's, when things head to an end, 
he's also doing like a very long kind of monologue a la Julius Caesar kind of you know just huge kind of like monologue and it's just poetically um, it's just better literature I suppose so I love that as well so there's a lot of small things to look out for here guys it's it's great especially regarding the language I find it's a play that really does pack a lot of content you know it's there's a lot to look out for in how it's written in the style in the little rhymes that appear but you know also just in the in the content I mean a lot happens uh, in this play it's a little bit longer than the previous ones we've done, but by no means is it, you know, is it near his longest. And it's no. still, it still manages to put a lot in. But you're right. I'm just looking back after you said something, and you're just right. It is in Act 4 when we get the minor characters. We get extended Ooh. scenes with, you know, the musicians and the servants in the Capulet's yeah. house. Things like yeah. that before Act 5, where it all kind of comes together. Yeah, and this, this often happens in, in Shakespeare. So uh, Shakespeare's play have... A kind of a not a rigged structure. It's not always the same, but especially with the with the tragedies and sometimes also with his romances, histories. Uh, usually at the end of Act One, there's a turning point. So that's important about Act One. Act One ends with something particular happening that draws. At the beginning of the play, sometimes you don't know what's going to happen. But at the end of Act One, characters have to maybe escape, like as you like it, they have to actually leave and go to the forest mm-hmm. of Arden. And and so, for example, at the end of Act One, uh, uh, for example, again Hamlet, he has to he has to kind of confront the fact that his the ghost might be his father. It's the major turn. He's going to pursue the truth. And here, the turning point is simply that Romeo is going to pursue Juliet instead of Rosalind. And that's it's a turning point because that's basically that changes the whole play. That makes it the play. Uh, the play it is. It's not Romeo and Rosalind. It's uh, Romeo and Juliet. Act two is pursues the goal, so it's not really. It's just how it happens, and it act usually two gets. Is, act two is my favorite. I think. I mean, act two is in, where in, you get the speeches with yeah. Romeo and Juliet, the the declaring of the love, you know, all that kind of stuff oh, happens. In act and, and and the famous balcony scene. That's and great. The, the, the the balcony scene is act two. Yeah. Yeah. And usually, act two is very light in Shakespeare. It's usually, act three, as I said, has become something very tragic happens, and then there's an absence of the main character. Act four, and then act five is the main character comes back. So usually the main character uh, becomes the main protagonist again at Act 5. That's very Shakespearean sort of kind of rigid formula. Um, yeah. So. You know, one, one moment that I really like, and I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's a part where Romeo is up with Juliet. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's about to come morning and he has to leave. But yeah. he says, oh, it's the lark. And she says, no, it's the nightingale. You can stay longer. It's the night. And it's very clearly the day and the sun's coming up. And But she just wants him to stay. And she says, no, mm. but stay because it's, it's, you know, it's not really morning at all. And he says, well, I'm pretty sure it is. But, you know, if, if it's your <laughs> command, then I'll just stay here and be killed because I love you. And that's it, you know. And he and she, then she says, "No, okay, go, go, go." But you know the fact that he just resigns that that kind of passionate love, mm. where he's just like, "Well, you want me to stay, so I just surrender my life to you immediately." I love it. It's mad, like, but but to be honest, guys, like, um, I, I think you can read that so many different ways. Because in one sense, this is a comedy. In one sense, the comedy is ridiculous, and in one sense, this is true teenage love. Because when you're a teenager and you fall in love for the yeah. first time. No, but when you're a teenager and you fall in love the first time, you actually do feel this way. Don't forget, uh, we actually don't know Roman's age, but we're hoping that he's not too old. Right? We're hoping he's not 30. I got the impression that he's like 20. I don't know. <laughs> and she's 13. But we're, I, I'm hoping he's 17. I hope this is all kind of like, you know, underage, innocent. But anyway, 
anyway, it's a different time. But anyway, the whole point is, guys, that um, I think it's very realistic. It is very realistic. Usually a teenager would say something like that, and it seems ridiculous to us as adults. But I think this is why Roman Jude is so popular. It's the ultimate teen drama. So this is basically anyone who loves kind of like, you know, not, you know, the, the, the nonsense that's, you know, not all of it is nonsense, but I mean, you know, like what, you know, what's that vampire film called again? Oh, New the, Dawn. The, the New Dawn. Yeah. Wait, we shouldn't be expressing opinions, guys. I'm sad but now it... because I'm really sad that I knew that's what you meant and I didn't mention <laughs> like a Christopher Lee Hammer Horror Dracula, Return <laughs> Dracula or something, you know. Anyway, we're not having a go at Twilight, guys. Actually, Twilight <laughs> might be the best thing since sliced, um, sliced gluten free uh, toast. But um, it's just not, it's just not, you know, anyway. I I've, do I've love... never seen it. I can't speak. I assume yeah, it's garbage. So I think we but, can't yeah. be, we, can't, we, we should just read it. We might be, uh, we might be doing a review where it's brilliant. But what I'm saying is, God, what I'm saying is, if you like that kind of stuff, but I understand why you would. I do understand why. I just, I, I, I was too old by the time it came out. I understand. But if you like that kind of stuff, you're going to like Roman Juliet's. And it's not that Roman Juliet was original necessarily. It was based on an Italian um, story, but it did Shakespeare perfected it, and I don't, I'm not sure if it's been more perfected than than this. This is the archetypal teen romance. That's like, what that's it. Not, that, thank you. That's Archetype. there's there's nothing. That's why every romance you mentioned Titanic, you know, every romance you ref, you can think, oh, it's a modern day Romeo and Juliet because this is the archetype. Romance, yeah. You know? And hold on a second, Twilight. Um, as far as I know, it's about vampire was a was a, was the real person. Uh, was a real person. I don't. Uh, look, vamp- I'm. I'm- I'm very specific with my vampires. I only want them to be Dracula. <laughs> Can we just have Dracula and nothing else? Okay. No, no, say, but what I'm saying is though that that's Roman Juliet because they obviously can't be together. The vampire was a girl. Basically, uh, Stephanie not? Meyer, I don't know. I've not seen it. Stephanie Meyer was at least it, but she might have not been directly influenced by the play, but she's influenced by this um, by this idea of um, uh, but this classical idea of teenage romance that can't exist. And sure, this is this story is so popular. It's the most popular play by Shakespeare, alongside Hamlet, maybe. But there's a reason for that because everyone can relate to love that cannot be matched, even if you're not a teenager. There's always something. There's often something in the way. You're not of the same religion, social classes, especially Elizabethan time, guys, Renaissance. But even up to modern day, this story is just as relevant. I mean, sure, they did the MTV production of of. Um, Romeo plus Juliet, yeah, you know, set in modern times in the nineties, and it's still just as relevant because it's it, and so is Shakespeare because it's it's relevant. Shakespeare is relevant. It is, and I modern. I will always say with you know with with the good Shakespeare plays that if you take away a couple of old fashioned references and the play could be set in modern times, totally right, no, and because the, the story is still true. It's this timeless, is, this right? Is what, and what people feel, yeah. You know? Oh, and do you know what I would? Uh, you know what I find interesting about this thing. Do you know um, another reason why possibly uh, people might love um, Romeo and Juliet, particularly? It's uh, it's the language. It's it's very big in iambic pentametric verses. Mm. And guys, uh, just to make clear again, iambic pentametric verses are basically pentameters are are five. It's basically five feet. In one verse, so uh, Shakespeare has. When you're reading the play, it's more clear. Re- opened up with the play, and in most of Roman Juliet, if not all of it, it's basically there are ten syllables, ten syllables, 
and two syllables make one feet, so it's pentametric, five feet. And iambic means that there's emphasis on the second syllable. And basically, it's being compared to the heartbeat. So it's dum 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 And one reason why people might actually relate to, to Shakespeare in general, especially Roman Juliet, because it's very big in this one, is that the, is that the language relates to, to the heartbeat. It's basically, it's an organic language Shakespeare is using because it's not blank verse. It's not um, a different type of rhythm. And it's not, const it's not constantly iambic, by the way. But the fact that Shakespeare often uses a heartbeat language makes this completely relevant still because, you know, heartbeat is not going to change rhythm. And I find this just genius, you know, just the fact that just, just read Shakespeare, just take a line from Roman Juliet. A public service announcement to anyone listening. If your heartbeat is changing or losing rhythm, please immediately phone your emergency <laughs> services. All right, guys, if, you, if, if it's not working out for you, if you're doing this and your heartbeat is more like da -da -da -dum, da -da -da -dum, and you're wondering why Shakespeare is not resonating with you. If you're expecting maybe... an iambic pentameter and you're getting you know, the boat <laughs> or something, go straight to the, to the hospital. Exactly, guys. So if, if you don't like Shakespeare, if Shakespeare makes you nauseous, there might actually be something wrong with thy heart. Well, that's a deep one. That's a deep one, guys. Let that sink into your, let that, see, let that sink into you. Actually, Dean, but one thing, though, I uh, just want to mention briefly, a side note, because you were very amused at this, and it actually got me thinking a bit as well. Uh, about... <laughs> Is this the, the, what I called you during the week to mention the Capulet? Yeah. Yeah, because it's a very interesting fact. Like, so, so tell us, like, what, what you found. So I, know, I, I found this absolutely hilarious. So because in the beginning, he says, you know, Capulet about his daughter, Juliet, he does say something like, you know, that she will be able to marry for love and they'll find a good man and he'll support her. He says something to that effect in a, in a throwaway remark. And then later, he basically says, well, mm -hmm. you're marrying um, Paris, who is uh, a kinsman to the prince. And he says, you're marrying mm -hmm. Paris. And she kind of, well, I, I don't really want to marry Paris. And I thought, you know, he's going to say, well, you know, try to persuade her. Maybe you should. Whatever. No, he just becomes aggressively violent. Like, you're no daughter of mine, you harlot, you saucy baggage, you know, and tells her to, to, you know, that he will disown her. And that's it. She will be disowned. She will have no family. She will inherit nothing, you know, because she won't do what she's told. And that basically Ooh. she needs a lesson in, in obedience. And it's it really came out of nowhere. Oh. I, I, I thought it was amusing as well, but it did get me, it, it got me thinking. I've got a few uh, ideas about this. Now, do you want to hear this and see how, you, you might just laugh out once again when you hear this. But I think that's a, I think that's a very interesting fact that you mentioned that, that he, that as a beginning, at the beginning, he's, you know, he's a great lad. He's actually a nice dad, which you don't necessarily get too often in Shakespeare. He kind of just wants the best for his daughter. But listen to this thing. How about this? A Lord uh, Capula has got a daughter. Right, he doesn't have a son, okay. Mm -hmm. Different to uh, Lord Montague, who has Romeo. So Lord Capulet also at the beginning of the play, guys, when there is the big fight at the beginning, Lord Capulet comes and he wants a long sword. Which, by the way, a long sword was an old-fashioned weapon at Elizabethan times. So it was already kind of like that was already referenced that he's a bit outmoded. And then later, Capulet rudely, I may say, so says when he says, I "Call for my long sword," she says, "A crutch." A crutch. Why call you for a sword? Uh, I think basically that's one thing. And then, still in Act One, Act One, uh, um, two scenes further, I think, when there is the party, 
Tybalt wants to kill Romeo because he's trespassed. And he and he actually thinks for some reason Romeo is seeking is like making fun of them. And then he wants to kill Romeo, and Lord Capulet actually says, No, how dare you? Um, I am I am the ruler here. Who is the Lord? I mean, the fact that he even asked, like, who is Lord? Uh, basically shows that he is losing control. Mm. Now, do you want do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Do you see okay. kind of what I'm getting at? So it's basically what I'm getting at is that uh, Lord Capital at the beginning, sure, he might say that marry anyone you want. That's fair enough. Because first of all, he has Tybalt. He can always be the one who can um, keep up the tradition of Capulet when he dies. It's basically the... Um, sorry, what I'm getting at is here, it's, it's a person that appears in most of Shakespeare's plays. It's the aging, the aging patriarch. The impotent patriarch. The, basically, someone who was powerful man and is now getting older. And at all mm. the plays we've looked at, at all the plays we've looked at so far, Midsummer Night's Dream, for example, Let's just let's just go back a bit. We have Teseus, Aegeus, and Oberon, basically Dukes of Duke of Athens, father to Hermia and King of Fairies, all kind of losing the plot basically. As soon as the girls uh, or their members of their staff, they want to kind of leave them. Uh, Shakespeare's plays are full of men who are actually ridiculous, especially to modern readers. They're ridiculous. And they're not really that likable characters. Tezeus and Aegeus, especially from Midsummer Night's Dream, they seem a bit ridiculous. And it's basically about these people, they don't want to relinquish control, especially um, if they have a daughter. Look, the same happens with uh, the father to Desdemona in Othello, Barbantio, who absolutely loses the plot when Desdemona marries Othello because he's dark-skinned. Or as you like it, for example, Duke Frederick, He's also losing it with his niece when he finds out that she's getting too popular. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. If people don't know what we're talking about, I have uh, I have a quick quote here to describe the scene. So basically, mm. we have... I mean, Capulet thinks we've got the marriage set up with an important person, a friend of the prince, the, the, you know, the county, Paris. You know, you should be happy. And, you know, he says to go to Paris, to, church, uh, to St. Peter's Church... Uh, on Thursday, the, the the wedding is set for Thursday. Now her cousin Tybalt has just died, so she has that excuse mm. for her sadness. But really, it's because she secretly married Romeo. Mm. Um, and they think, well, she's sad because of Tybalt. So they say, well, what is it now? Monday? Well, we can't possibly get you married on Wednesday. You need some time to mourn. How's Thursday? You know, because apparently mourning <laughs> you get your two days, and then that's it. You're fine. And she I'm says, you know, that I'm um, thank you for arranging everything, but. I don't, you know, want to to do that right now. And he says, Thursday next, to go with Paris to St. Peter's Church, or I will drag thee on a hurdle thither. Oh, you green sickness carrion, out, you baggage, you tallow face. Mm. And the wife says, fie, fie, what, are you mad? And Juliet says, good father, I beseech you on my knees, hear me with patience, but but to speak a word. And Capulet's reply he doesn't listen to her entreaties. He just says, hang thee, young baggage, disobedient wretch. I tell thee what, get thee to church on Thursday or never after look me in the face. Speak not, reply not, do not answer me. So he's basically saying, I have no interest in hearing from you. Do what you're told and that's it. And this is a loss of control. And I find, 
possibly Shakespeare might have been referring to like the monarchies, for example, like kings getting older, queens possibly as well, but especially kings getting older and basically becoming more vicious and cruel. And that's where they love cruel kings in, in Shakespeare's plays as well. It's very relevant at the time because England was suffering because of these, uh, you know, babyish, childish kings. And they're not very likable character, are they? I mean, and I find one kind of interesting play is uh, The Tempest because The Tempest's main character, Prospero, is the aging patriarch, except he's already lost it. He's already lost it and he's now regaining power, which is interesting because The Tempest is Shakespeare's last play. So, which makes it interesting, I find, because Shakespeare by that time was an old man, possibly wanting to regain power by writing one last mm. play, The Tempest. So I find there is, but then with these earlier plays, they're just uh, aging projects, losing it. They haven't lost it yet. So I find that interesting. And uh, Richard III, for example, uh, has it as well. I mean, oh, a, a, almost every play has it. Even, for example, Comedy of Errors with the Duke right at the beginning. He wants to kill uh, the father mm. of the twins. And uh, not, because, not because of any kind of uh, personal reason, uh, but because possibly because he's losing some kind of control, although it's not clear what. That's just a minor thing. But I'm mm. I'm I'm going even I'm I'm going going to even say that even in comedy of errors has it. Okay, uh, well may, maybe yeah, it's not a, it's not a theory. Pronounced. It's a theory. Yeah. Just a theory of mine. So, I suppose my question now is: Are we going to talk about Act Five at all, or are we going to leave it? Mm, I think guys, it's no, I think we have to mention it a bit, don't we? Uh, any any anything particular like to say? I mean, I think I'd like to leave the how. So basically, guys, yeah, I mean, they're star-crossed. They're going to take their lives. So, I mean, you can guess what's going to happen. And we can leave that how. But um, anything particularly uh, interesting about Act 5? Or, or should I say, like, anything that surprised you? Because you knew how it was going to end. But I still had one or two things that was kind of like where I thought, all right, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, I mean, I'm... <laughs> I more or less knew the ending. Um, yeah. I have two. I have two main points actually from Act Five. One is that it does feature one of my favorite moments in the play. I guess my second favorite, which is hmm. the kiss on the. I mean, I, I I literally made a song a few months ago called "A Kiss on the Lips and a Dagger in the Heart." It's that moment where, oh, yeah. and I I don't want to spoil you know too many details of why, but when Romeo and Ju- when Juliet in particular dies, it's it's caused mm-hmm. by a kiss on the lips and a dagger in the heart, and that's a uh, great i mean it's an amazing moment it's just uh yeah. it is like ultra romance you know it's it's almost too much it's too much guys and guys don't don't forget that love death and fortune and family those are the four main themes about rome and juliet and fortune in particular so like just fate fortune fate is 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 a word often used in the play and right at the beginning of the prologue, they're star-crossed and they have to die because nothing will end their parents' rage except that. So they have to die, but if the way they die also adds, I feel like, a sense of drama and a sense of maybe also satisfying Elizabethan spectators, you know. I, I can imagine particularly those groundlings, like having, kind of just being fascinated by, by the act of like these two exotic, beautiful young people dying so romantically since since you ask what surprises me there is something which i didn't i'll get to my second point in a moment but the thing that did surprise me was that paris also has to die 
because that just yeah, yeah. amps up the tragedy. You know, that just increases the tragedy because I didn't I didn't see that coming. You know, yeah, that, that, that was great. The so. tragedy. But and that's the, great, the, the last point I notice, and this is totally unimportant, so it's not really a spoiler, but for no reason at all, when they're having their final wrap up and everyone's kind of sorting everything out, Montague, mm-hmm. the father of Romeo, mentions that due to all the stress, his wife has died during the night. For no reason, that's just in there. Like, oh yeah, there's another body on your tally chart, you know. It, it, yeah, it, it, well, it's just like it's just like the Scottish play, you know. It's very, it's very bloody, and um, and I mean, Christopher Marlowe did this more. Christopher Marlowe like write it, it, he wrote his stuff for the audience and made it more bloody because that seemed to be getting quite popular around the end of the 16th century in England. Kind of very bloody, sort of dramatic, violent plays, and something. Uh, it's it's kind of similar here. Roman Juliet is a bit more. I'm not going to say commercial. It's not commercial, but it's a bit more written for the audience. I find even with the prologue, it's it's kind of like, well, I really wanted to please my audience. Is it does come across a bit, but in the best sense possible. Uh, but like, whereas the Tempest, for example, just feels like he was just kind of doing whatever he wanted. I feel like. Uh, yeah. But I feel like this one was kind of like, oh yeah, everyone's going to enjoy this because of this and this and this and this and so many different things and themes and the thing is in reality i mean this this is a masterpiece but you could almost say it's his first great play because once Mm. you get over his initial period where he's writing you know a lot of henry's and so forth um his first non non king play his first non-history is the comedy of errors but he does a few silly ones comedy of errors taming of the shrew love's labor's lost isn't bad we might do it one day but then romeo and juliet that's the first big one yeah, that's a that's a great one. And you I can guess. you can tell that he, you know, I think you're right in the sense that a lot it was uh, a long worked on play. You know, it is his first great play. Yeah, it's a great play, guys. So, and then afterwards, he would write more tragedies, and Hamlet came afterwards, and all these other uh, great plays. But yeah, guys, um, I think that's about it, isn't it? Ian? I mean, what is not it? There's a lot more to say, but I think I'm going to leave it uh, with this. Uh, yeah, guys, just I, I would suggest keep a look at how many times those four themes come, um, come up and how interlinked they are the family, uh, fate, death, and love. By the way, two little fun facts. In no play apart from Two Gentlemen of Verona is the word love mentioned as much. I believe it's uh, 94 times is the word love mentioned in Roman Juliet. Wow. But, in no other play apart from Richard III is death or dead mentioned as much, 81 times. Doesn't surprise me because Richard III is such a violent play. Uh, it would surprise me that. If I death. may be a very, very pretentious so-and-so and quote one of my own song lyrics, um, the oh, end of... You can't help the, yourself. Yeah. Sorry, no, I can't. The end <laughs> of romance is death, Okay. That's yeah. that's that's the end of romance. That's the ultimate, you know. That's where romance leads. That's in this kind of Shakespearean uh, mm. romance. It, it it leads to death. It's too much. It's too strong. Yeah. Oh, and guys, and don't forget. Actually, well, I, I love that you mentioned that because I did want to mention that Shakespeare. I mentioned this before. Shakespeare um, plays lost popularity shortly after it, uh, he died. Not too much, but just he wasn't quite as well respected by some people. And especially during the Enlightenment period, they thought, you know, it it didn't really correspond to the idea of logic and Greek classicism. It broke almost always the Aristotelian principle of unity of time, time, etc. 
and it were the romantics, as in the romanticists, all right, the romantics, uh, Goethe, but also Lord Byron in England, but especially the Germans, because they're the big romanticists, they basically revived Shakespeare. They were fascinated by Shakespeare. They did a huge amount of interpretations of Shakespeare. So this is talking about the right at the end of uh, the 18th century, more at the beginning of the 19th century onwards, Shakespeare became a big thing. And he only grew in popularity when modernism came and expressionists thought that he was so expressionistic and surrealists thought that he was so dreamlike with Midsummer Night's Dream and existentialists thought that it was all about the existence. And I mentioned this because, yes, this is the uh, basically every romantic playwright or writer studied this play Romeo and Juliet yeah yeah, they just had to yeah this was basically oh let's study how to be a romantic person or a romantic writer let's just study this and this is basically so it's very interesting and but romanticism still exists and it's still there and um, hence it would just this would just this would never die I feel this play People will always understand this, yeah. There's a reason this, why it's This so play popular. is immortal. This play is love. Yeah, it is you immortal. Know, uh, it's not going away. And they say right at the end of the play, it's not a giveaway, but they do say it to the story, but they do say at the end, we will do a statue of Roman Juliet. And so they did, Shakespeare, in the sense of that these kids had to die in order for us to feel for them and to keep the story alive. Mm-hmm. So even like, because if they hadn't died, I don't think it would have been such a popular play. People, because no, people no. felt identified. Elizabethan times, people were dying all over the place, like just like flies. People identified with with death. People identified with things like love, and then quickly dying, and maybe like also memento mori. You know, remember that you must die. So it's uh, fascinating, guys. It's 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 a very relevant play if you're a human being. Really recommend it. Uh, I have to say, I I did see Roman Juliet performed, and I didn't get it. Uh, I when i was younger uh, i recommend reading this first and then watching the play um it's just the language and all that stuff it's just really understand the play and then watch it and then you just love it really love it cool well i think that that's us for romeo and juliet guys if you're listening it means that you're you know you're supporting the show and we really appreciate that so Mm. it really helps us out and it means that we have more more time to bring you more great content so we appreciate that. Don't forget that the best thing you can ever do is just to tell more people to listen and, and help us increase our, our listenership and just recommend cool. anyone to go to booksboys.com. We will have more content. I think we will do some more Shakespeare's and we are thinking about mm-hmm. doing some Greek plays. So there'll definitely be some more more bonus content coming um, coming soon. Exactly. And I think that that is us. Thanks again to Trapdoor for our theme music. I did a Cheers. I did a trick now. I did a trick because this week I played not Aztec versus Aztec, the instrumental, but I played the vocal oh. version of Aztec. A because this is the big play, you know. But B oh. because the lyrics I played feature the line "You will regret that this whole thing started," which I thought was like very very apt for the love of Romeo and Juliet, you know. You're full. You're full of tricks, and I like that. Yeah, full of little full of tricks. Guys, thanks for listening. Take care. Have a Shakespearean day. Have a Shakespearean day, guys. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.